And we're going to pick up from verse 32. Um, you remember last week, if you were here, we almost got to the end of the sermon, but not quite. So we just need to do the last little ver- few verses, and then I'll try and speed up a little bit so we actually finish what we're supposed to do today. Um, but there's so much here, and there's so much that's good, and we want to see the glory of God, and we want to enjoy that together. And whether you're someone who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, uh, and I love this, or you're someone who says, I haven't got a clue how I ended up being in church, that I'm not sure what I'm doing here, I really want you to listen this afternoon, and it may just be that God has something he wants to say to you um, through his word. So let's, um, let's read from verse 32 of John chapter 1 uh, through to the end of the chapter. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who'd heard what John had said and who'd followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, this is the part of God's word we're going to try and understand together. I mean, there's plenty to go on, isn't there, in that. Um, But I want to start by asking, imagine that we took a snapshot of your life, the past week. I wonder how the past week has been for you. We took one week and we said, what can we learn about you from this past week? We're not going to do this, don't worry. But I wonder if you'd feel comfortable about that. I wonder if you'd feel excited about that. Perhaps you might think, well, to be honest, they're just going to see how boring my life is. Or perhaps there's things in this past week when you've been quite ashamed. Or perhaps there's things this week which have been awesome, but that's not really the real you, is it? (laughs) 
What is it? I wonder what your week would be like. Well, as John starts his gospel, it's very interesting. He gives us a week in the life of Jesus. He says, let me show you one week of Jesus' life, and I'll show you what he is like. Let me just explain what I mean. You'll notice, as I read it perhaps, that John is quite interested in the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. If you count them up, look, we'll we'll do it together. Okay, there's a day uh, in verses 19 to 28. Then you get the next day, so that's two. Everyone all right? Then you get the next day, verse 35. Verse 43, the next day, that's four. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, that makes seven. Here is a week in the life of Jesus. I don't think it's an accident that what happens on the seventh day happens on the seventh day. But anyway, we'll get to that next week. But you see, John says, let me show you one week in the life of Jesus. And he's got, he wants to paint this portrait for us, or better, weave this tapestry, because there are going to be two themes that weave through this week of the life of Jesus. And we're going to look at this life of Jesus, we're just going to work through it twice, once looking at one theme and then the other looking at the other. And if you've been here for the last two weeks, these two themes might not entirely surprise you. Firstly, John is going to show us the sheer greatness of Jesus. But then he's going to show us the nearness of Jesus. Greatness and nearness, or word became flesh, or the Lord who is the Lamb. Over and over again, John says you've got to know these two things about Jesus. You've got to know how great he is, and you've got to know how near he's come. That's what we're doing. Two points this afternoon, greatness, nearness. Easy as until you discover that the first point has got eight subpoints, <laughs> which is irritating and it's like a preacher's trick. But I'm just coming clean. We're going to go fast. I just want to show you. We haven't got time to unpack all of these. This could be a series of a whole term's worth of stuff. I just want to show you how John again and again says, look how great he is. Look how great he is. So we're just going to work our way through from where we started in verse 32. So get your eyes down. Let's follow this together and let's... Watch as John shows us a life, a week in the life of Jesus. So verse 32, John, that's John the Baptist, gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify this is God's chosen one. Here is The first thing, the greatness of Jesus, he is God's chosen one. God marked him out. At his baptism, everybody else, when they got baptized, they got baptized, they got wet, under they went. But when Jesus got baptized, something that never happened to anyone else happened. The Spirit of God came down in the form of a dove and it remained on him. That was God's way of saying, this one's different. Notice this one. And John the Baptist says, I've seen it. I I testify, this is the chosen one. There are no auditions. There are no elections. No one applies for the job. There are no nominations. You don't get a few people stand up behind podiums and sell their vision. You just get God say, that one. And that one alone. Jesus didn't win a competition He was just appointed by his father. 
That's the greatness of Jesus. God said, he's the one. And if God said that, can I humbly suggest that we take notice? Let's move on. That's the first thing. The second thing is in verse 36, where we're told that John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God. Now, we talked about this quite a bit last week. So if you want to know more about Lamb of God, you can listen to last week's sermon. But the lamb was the means by which God saved. The lamb dies and the people are saved. That's how it works. The lamb is the substitute. And so here's the greatness of Jesus. He's the one who comes to save the world. (laughs) That's who he is. God said to his son, I want you to go save the world. I want you to go be the lamb. No one else has died for the world. Only Jesus. No one else can take away the sin of the world. Only Jesus. He's great. No one else like him. No one else gets the title lamb. Only him. Third thing. The two disciples um, who are following John stop following John and start following Jesus in verse 37. And Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? They say, Rabbi. Here's the third thing. Jesus is the rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. And Jesus is the one who has the authority to teach us what is true. This title of rabbi gets applied to Jesus as the supreme authority, as the one who has the right to speak into our lives. We like to think that we know what we're doing and we like to think we're in control, but there are moments when we realize we're not. And when we think we are, we're not. And what we need is a teacher who can come and speak truth to us. And here is the one who knows, who truly knows. Because remember, he's God's appointed one upon whom the spirit rests. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to be honest, I want him to be my teacher. And there might be moments where you find yourself in disagreement with Jesus. Jesus, I'm not sure you're right. Can I say Jesus is right? And just like when you go to an astrophysics lecture and the brainiest astrophysicist in the whole world is standing there, you know nothing about it. You say, I think you might be wrong about that. You're wrong, not him. Jesus is not wrong. He's never wrong. He's the teacher. But not only is he the teacher, as they spend this time with him, in verse 41, look what they say. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah. (laughs) They go from calling him rabbi to suddenly now saying he's not just the rabbi, he's the Messiah. What does that mean? Well, the Messiah is the one who you pin all your hope on. The Messiah is the one who can put everything right. If you're a football fan and your team is useless and you... You know, suppose you support Chelsea or something and you're, you're, it's all right, Trev. And you say, here comes Frank Lampard. He's going to be the Messiah. What you mean is I'm pinning all my hope on this man who's going to sort everything out. That's what a Messiah is. But Frank Lampard is not the Messiah. And it's like, you, you, I don't know if you ever used to play pin the tail on the donkey when you were kids. What a weird game that is. You know, you have a donkey I mean, not a real donkey, that would be cruel. <laughs> but you have a picture of a donkey without a tail, and you've got all the kids are blindfolded, and they've got to pin their hope on something. Pin the, no, they've got to pin the tail 
I'm getting ahead of my illustration. <laughs> it's so good, it just flows. You've got to pin the tail on the donkey. And we play pin the hope on the Messiah. We're desperately looking for a Messiah who we can pin our hope on. But the trouble is we're blind most of the time. And we're desperately going around with a pin going, I hope there's someone, perhaps you'll do it. And we pin our hope on politicians and leaders and celebrities and friends and a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a something, anything that we pin our hope on. And Andrew says, Simon, I, I think I found him. I think the search is over. I think this is the one. This is the one who's going to put everything right. This is the one who's been promised. I think we pin our hope here. Here's the greatness of Jesus. He is the hope, the Messiah, the one who will put all things right. And still we go on. Jump down to verse um, 45. Philip found Nathaniel. So we know about Philip on the scene. We're going to come back to these stories in a minute. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. So not just the Messiah. Now, this is one week of his life, right? And he gets all these things said about him. We found the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. Now, Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament. So get this. This is what they're saying. When Jesus was born, there was already a book about him. Can you think of any other human being... Of whom that is true. There are plenty of books about people who've already been born. You can read Gary Lineker's biography and Boris Johnson's biography and anyone else's biography. But they've all been born. Here's the one whose biography was written before he was born. Here's the one who's been written about for countless centuries. The whole of the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of your Bible, it's all about Jesus. It's all building up to him. That's the greatness. It's all about him. Do you know what Noah's Ark is about? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jonah and the fish, it's all about Jesus. Daniel and the lion's den. The bloke who walked around Jericho, Joshua, walking around Jericho, fighting the battle of Jericho. It's all about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. It's all pointing forwards to him so that we might read the Old Testament and go, there must, there's one coming, there's one coming who's better than Noah and who's better than Joshua and who's better than Daniel and who's better than Jonah. There's one coming who's better. And then here comes Philip and he says, I think I found him. I think this is him. Everything's about him. The sheer greatness, you can almost feel John as he writes his gospel saying, can't you see? But we're still not done. Jump down to verse 48, uh, 49. Jesus has an interaction with Nathaniel. And then look what these ti- the titles that come from Nathaniel. You're the son of God. Wait, look, if you've been around church, okay, it, you probably go, yeah, fine, whatever, Jesus is the son of God. Come on. No, not whatever. For someone, for a grown man to look another man in the eye and say, I think you're the son of God. That's extraordinary. 
The sheer greatness. And as John goes through his gospel, he's going to unpack this title of Jesus, the Son of God, so that we will understand that this is not just a nice, oh, we're all God's children, aren't we? This is a title that speaks of Jesus and his relationship with his Father for all eternity. Okay, just hang on to your seats for one second. Just try this for a second. If If God never changes... Right? God doesn't change. He can't change. He will never change. He's immutable. That's what we mean when we say immutable. He doesn't change. And if he is called father, that means he's always been father, which means he's always had a son. It must be the case that the father and the son have always existed in perfect relationship. It's not like there was God and then one day he said, oh, let's have a child. No. The Father and the Son have always existed. And Nathaniel says, you're the Son of God. You're equal to God himself. You're the King of Israel. Do you see how it just mounts up and up? What's the king supposed to do? The king is supposed to be the hero, right? The king is the one who's supposed to fight the battles on your behalf. The king is not the one who sits in luxury, or shouldn't be, sitting in luxury eating grapes. The king is the one at the forefront of the army who goes into battle as a courageous warrior to defeat the enemy and save the people. That's what the king does. So think Goliath. Here's Goliath. Wow, you're big. Here's David. Who's David? He's going to be the king. What does David do? He goes to fight the enemy. He destroys the enemy so that God's people Israel are saved. The king of Israel defeats the enemy so that God's people are safe. Nathaniel looks at Jesus and says, oh boy, you're the king of Israel. Jesus has come to fight a battle. He's come to be a warrior king. He's come to defeat the greatest enemies, not now a physical enemy or a physical giant, but the enemy of death that stands against us because of our sin. The enemy of Satan, who is God's great enemy, The enemy of our sin, Jesus at the cross, takes death and he destroys it. He takes Satan and he defeats him and he takes sin and he removes it. That is our king. He's the king of Israel. He's our warrior king. And Nathaniel says, that's you. Here's the greatness. The greatness of this one. And there's still one more. Because in verse 50, Jesus Well, verse 51, Jesus says um, to him, Very truly, I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here Jesus is referring to something that happened in the Old Testament when a man called Jacob had a vision and he saw a ladder between heaven and earth, a a stairway, not Led Zeppelin stairway to heaven, a much, much better one, a, a proper real one. And Jacob saw this ladder and the angels of God ascending and descending. And it was a connection between heaven and earth. Suddenly heaven and earth could be joined. And Jesus says, you know that ladder? Yeah, that's me. That's me. I'm the connection between heaven and earth. I'm the one through whom you will know God. You will know my father. I am the son of man who has all authority and the one that Daniel saw in Daniel 7. And if you're not getting all of this, it doesn't matter because the point is you just feel the greatness. 
all nations will worship and bow down to the Son of Man. That's what Daniel 7 says. Now, I don't know about you, but that's just, it's not even a full week. That's just four days. That's not bad. Oh, that we would glimpse something of this glory. That it would fall heavily on us that we would see it. And that we would marvel at this one. Oh, how tempting it is to shrink Jesus down and to think Jesus is, he's all right. Come on. His greatness is way beyond our understanding. But we need to change now to see the second theme. I want to go back through the story. Because this is where suddenly it becomes beautiful what John is doing. Think about how greatness works in our world. How close do you get to greatness? You're always kept at a distance from greatness, right? So when you're out in London and you see they put barriers all along the side of the road, you know what that means, don't you? That means that someone great is going to go by who you need to stay away from. We really don't want you getting too close with your ungreat spoiling them. And then some meaningless celebrity passes by. That's, what, that's how it works in our world. Greatness is kept at a distance. Greatness lives away. Greatness has big gates that say, don't come in. But in John's gospel, greatness could not come any closer. Greatness could not come any nearer. This great one. I want to show you how close he comes. If you can stay awake for this, believe me, right, this is so beautiful. Anyway, I'm getting excited. So let's, let's go back. Let's go back. Remember the baptism? Here is the one. The Spirit has descended. God says, this is the one. This is the one. But what's he going to do? Did you see in verse 33? He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes on him and says, here is the special one. But then he says, I want to give my spirit out to all of my people. This is not exclusive one. He goes, oh yes, I have the spirit. Please don't come too close. This is the one who I have the spirit that I might pour him out on you. That all of you, all of us as God's people might know God. Have the spirit of God as ours, with us. Verse 36, we're told um, that John is there with two disciples and Jesus is passing by. The, the great one, oh, he's just passing by. Do you see how close? I wonder whether this is a reference back to when the glory of God passed by Moses. Here is the glory of God passing by. But as it passes by, I want you to see that what happens next is that two of them follow Jesus. So here they go, following following Jesus. And they're walking along, and then Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? I don't think he asks it in a kind of frustration, what do you want? Like you would do if someone was following you down the street. There's actually a deep, deep meaning in that question. I don't think the disciples get it. But there's a, what is it you want? 
What is it you're seeking? What is it that you actually most desire? What if Jesus were to ask you that right now? What is it that you want? Do you want to see my glory? What is it you want? They don't come up with a particularly enlightened answer. Rabbi, where are you staying? We'd like to see your house. (laughs) It's slightly odd. But then Jesus says, come and you will see. So they went with him and they saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. No, whoa, 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 hang on. Remember the greatness. Don't suddenly forget the greatness. This is the eternal son of God, the king of Israel, the Messiah, the lamb of God who's going to save the world. And he spends a day hanging out with these two guys. Can you not feel that? What a moment. I was preaching at another church this morning and I had to drive there and the radio was still on Capital um, Radio from when my kids were listening to it and I didn't listen to it for long, but it was on. And there was, there was a... It's <laughs> my embarrassed way of saying I was listening to Capital this morning. And, uh, and there was a competition to win the opportunity to meet... Help me out. Camilla Cabello. Thanks. Opportunity to meet Camilla Cabello. You just had to text in, donate three pounds to charity, free, you know, voluntarily. And you could meet Camilla Cabello. I wasn't that inspired. But she did sing that Havana song, which is quite catchy. <laughs> right? We, that's it. Capital go, what's the best thing that we could imagine? Ooh, why don't you spend probably five minutes with Camilla Cabello? These guys get a whole day with the eternal son of God who created them, made them, sustains them, upholds them and will one day die on the cross to save them. I know which I prefer. Here is how close Jesus comes, that he would spend time with people, that he would spend time with people even like us. Do you realize that the reason Jesus came was so that you could spend time with him? Now, we don't have Jesus physically here with us, but he is here by his spirit. And he says that he wants to spend time with us each day, right? Each morning as your alarm goes off, you get the opportunity to open up the Bible, to spend some time with Jesus. In fact, he says in Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and eat with them. (laughs) That's what Jesus says. And yet, oftentimes, I can't be bothered. Jesus is so much more willing to spend time with us than we are with him. And therefore, as we get a glimpse of his glory, oh God, let it be that we would crave time with him. That we would make time for him. That we'd look at our diary and we would say, where can I spend time with Jesus this week? Where can I set aside time? Linda's already told you about the conversation she had up with the person who went to Edinburgh. I genuinely thought that story was going to end. They just got fantastic preaching. It was was brilliant. I just feel so much more connected to God now. (laughs) Great. Anyway. Let's spend time with Jesus. Let's go on. Oh, um, so, uh, Andrew goes to get Simon. 
And uh, they say, we found the Messiah. And he brings him to Jesus. Right, look at verse 42. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. Greatness doesn't do that. Greatness doesn't know our names, does it? Greatness might, might deign to wave at us with a royal wave from a chariot as it goes by. But here is the eternal son of God who meets this man and says, I know your name and I know your dad's name. You're Simon, son of John. (laughs) See how much I know? But then he says, and you will be called Cephas. He changes his name, which is a really weird thing to do. You know, if you come up to me and you go, hi, John, I've decided I'm going to call you Sam. I like the name Sam. Sam's a great name. But I'm not Sam. Why does Jesus feel that he has this right to say to, to Simon, I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you Cephas. It's actually a really beautiful picture of what Jesus came to do. It's about his nearness. He knows Simon's name. He knows everything about Simon. He knows Simon's character. He knows the ways that Simon is going to fail because Simon is going to fail. Simon is going to let Jesus down. But Jesus says to him, Simon, let's call you Cephas. Let's call you Rock. Not because Simon is a rock, but because that's what Jesus is going to do in him. You see, when someone meets Jesus, they are changed. When someone meets Jesus, it isn't that Jesus just goes, I'm fine, we'll just leave you as you are. He comes to us and he says, I know you, I know your name, I know your failings, I know your weaknesses, I know the ways you struggle, I know all of that. Now let me give you a new name. In Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus speaks to the church in Pergamum, he says to each of the Christians, when to picture this, I'm going to give you a stone, and on that stone is written a new name. Do you realize that Jesus has a new name for you? Why? Because that's why he came. And some of us sit here and we're so defined by our name, by our failure, by our weakness. We're defined by all the ways in which we feel so rubbish. And Jesus says, I'm the Lamb of God who takes all that stuff away. Let's redefine. Let's make you new. Let's give you a new name. Let's do this. Let's live a new life. And you're going to fail. But the hope is not in your performance. It's in the fact that Jesus said, Cephas, rock. Oh, do you believe what Jesus could do with you? Do you see? Do you see that you're not defined anymore by an old name? As you come to him, as you trust in him because he's so powerful and mighty, he gives you a new name. Some of us need to, some of us sitting here need to let go of our old names. I don't mean physically, I don't mean say I'm not going to be called Jonty anymore. I mean our, our identities, all the ways that we've failed. We need to let go of it and let Jesus redefine us. And say, no, this one's mine. My son, my daughter, my child. But let's keep going. We're still doing the, the nearness thing. Oh, man. We've got to get to the end. Um, 
The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Right, follow is a near thing, right? Jesus doesn't say wave at me from a distance or sing some songs or worship me or give me money. He says, follow me. Come on, let's follow me. Come close to me. Let's walk behind me. Many of us, our approach to Jesus is we want him to sort of follow us. Jesus, I've got this great plan. I've got this great idea. Would you mind helping me? I've got some ambitions and some dreams. Could you come for the ride? Jesus is not interested in following you. He's not interested in fulfilling your dreams and desires. He's interested in you following him. And as you follow him, you discover who you are and what you were made to be. To follow Jesus is a decision every day. It's to take a step that says, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you. And there will be days when you get to a crossroads and you're not sure, shall I go this way, which I know is wrong, or this way, which is what Jesus says. This way seems so attractive. It seems so appealing. It looks so nice. But you've forgotten the greatness of the one who says, follow me. There is nothing in this world that will outgrate the greatness of Jesus. There's nothing in this world that will outshine the glory of Jesus. Do you not see that? And to choose to go your way, not his way, is not a choice of freedom. It is a choice of death. But to choose to go his way is to choose to follow the greatest. He came so that you could follow him. And I know that we'd love for our lives to kind of all be mapped out. I'd love to know all the different steps I need to take Jesus. He says, no, you follow me. One step at a time. What's the next step for you? What's the next step? What's the next one? Live your life following Jesus. You will be amazed where he takes you. Anyway, let's keep going. So um, Philip has this experience with Jesus and he goes and finds Nathaniel. And he tells Nathaniel that Jesus, that this one about who the Old Testament is about, is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, which Nathaniel's not very impressed by. Nazareth? I mean, come on. Nazareth is a dump. Nazareth is tiny and unimpressive. At this point, I've sometimes in the past fallen into the trap of trying to find an equivalent in the UK. Not playing that game today. If you're from Basingstoke, you're safe. All right? So we're not, not playing that. Not playing. I'm sorry, there is someone from Basingstoke here. I know there is, and I, every time they get cross with me. But Nazareth is not impressive. But you've got to see, isn't this so typical of how God works? The greatest, greatest of all comes to Nazareth. I love this idea that God is in heaven going, right, where should we choose? We've got the whole of the earth. Where should we choose for the eternal son of God to grow up? Where should we choose? Let's go Nazareth. And who should we choose to be his adopted dad? Let's go Joseph. Someone so ordinary. Something so unspectacular. And that is how God works. There is the extraordinary wrapped up in the ordinary. There is the the infinite comes to dwell in the finite. The word becomes flesh and he lives among us. He doesn't live in the greatest palace, in the greatest city. He lives in the middle of nowhere. He comes from Nazareth. Why? Because he wants you to know that he's for you. 
There is no distance that you have to cross. And some of us say, well, why would Jesus be bothered with me? I feel a bit Nazarethy. You feel a bit of a Nazareth person? Well, Jesus loved Nazareth. It's where he chose to grow up. Don't despise the ordinary. Don't despise it. Anyway, Philip says, well, why don't you come and have a look? So off goes um, Nathaniel and Philip. And then Jesus says, here truly is an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Again, such a strange thing to say. I don't think Jesus is saying that there's nothing deceitful in Nathaniel at all. I don't think he's saying he's the perfect man. I think what he's saying is here's a man who says what he really thinks. I mean, he did about Nazareth. (laughs) And the thing that Jesus hates more than anything in the Gospels is hypocrisy. He hates people who pretend to be something on the outside but are different on the inside. He hates people who put on a show but inside there's death. And he looks at Nathaniel and he goes, well, at least he's not that. Here's a guy who speaks what he finds. And Jesus says, I can work with that. I want to encourage you. You don't have to pretend to be something you aren't. You don't have to pretend to have it all nailed. You have to pretend to be something. Come to Jesus. He knows you. Nathaniel was slightly freaked out. How do you know me? <laughs> Whoa, this is scary. And Jesus says, oh, well, I saw you. Before Philip called you, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And Jesus demonstrates his intimate knowledge. He knows Nathaniel's inside. He knows Nathaniel's circumstances. And Nathaniel goes, whoa, you know everything. Here is the eternal son of God who comes so near that he knows everything about Nathaniel. Nathaniel goes, whoa, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus says, well, you haven't seen anything yet. You believe because of that? Just you wait to, what, to see what's going to happen. And Jesus promises that there will be even greater things. And what we have in the book of John's gospel is the greater things, the greater things that Jesus did so that you could believe it. So that you could believe greatness has come near. He's so near to you. He's so near. He's come so near. So that you could know him. Now, just as we um, finish, I sort of want to, there's been so much stuff here. It's just kind of chucked loads of stuff out. Just as we finish that, I just want to ask you this. Some people here will tend to think of Jesus as great, but quite distant from you. You don't really feel like you deserve anything from him. You feel pretty rubbish. You sit in a group like this and you go, well, I'm just, I'm worse than Nazareth. You know, I'm nothing. You kind of stand at the back behind the barriers waving at Jesus, but he feels so far away. If that's you, please, I beg of you, know that he came near. He knows your name. He has a plan for you as you follow him. He loves you. He died on a cross to take your sin. It's you. He knows your name. And he knows your name in such a way that he will give you a new name. So that you will become all that he wants you to be. But there may be others of us who kind of know the nearness of Jesus, but have lost sight of the greatness. So we treat Jesus in quite a flippant way, quite a careless way. Oh yeah, Jesus, that's nice. He died on the cross for me. Woohoo. Oh, we need to see the greatness. We need to be humbled again. 
by the fact that the one who knows our name and died on the cross in our place is the same one who is the eternal son of God, who is the Messiah, the Lamb. Greatness, nearness. God let us see. And as we see, we then go into workplace tomorrow and we look someone in the eye and we say, I think I might have found the Messiah. Come and see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your extraordinary grace that you would send your son, that he would come near so that we might know you. We love you. We worship you. Show us your glory. And for those of us who feel distant, Lord, draw us close. Let us know how near you have come to us in Jesus. And for those of us who feel that we've shrunk you down, Lord Jesus, be magnified in our lives, we pray. Amen.